Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, entrepreneur in residence at Red River West, co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to our episode 31, the first of two episodes on leadership and management. Bertrand and I will demystify leadership and management, define the difference between both, typify them, explore value systems, and also share our own core beliefs. As always, no BS. We will go below the surface and deep dive into this topic. From the ground up, let's start with the actual definition of this and a bit of a caveat emptor, right? You know, buyer be aware, as they call it. Obviously, we will share what we think are great practices of leadership and management, but by no means these are the only practices and by no means we aim to be professorial about it. Secondly, most importantly, probably by sharing our own views, we're not saying that we are amazing leaders or managers. So obviously that's not for us to judge, but for people that have worked with us, for us, with us along the years. So that is not the assumption. Obviously there is some assumption that we have something to say about this topic, otherwise you wouldn't be listening, but we don't aim to be arrogant enough to say that. So maybe starting with the definition of leadership versus management, and this comes from someone I used to work with, a very good friend, but also someone I worked with for a very long period of time in two different roles. And the way she would qualify the difference between leadership and management is, if the objective function is to get to hell, a leader is the person that can convey to people with amazing charisma and presence that we're going to go to hell and hopefully we'll come back for sure. Hopefully we'll come back, etc., etc. The leader will likely not define necessarily very much how one will get to hell and back, but they will convince people to go with them, certainly the first time around. A great manager might lack the charisma, but the great manager will define the steps to get to hell and back, will be clear about what needs to be done to get to hell and back. They might have difficulty in convincing people to go to hell in that first time, but it will be easier for them to convince them to go or try to go to hell a second or third time, even if they fail the first time, because they have a clearer view of the process to get there. So again, a leader normally is, in my opinion, a little bit more linked to, in some ways, great aspects of charisma. And management is basically linked to great aspects of understanding steps that need to be done and things that need to be done. A great manager might not be a great leader. A great leader might not be a great manager. There are very few great leaders that are great managers. So that's maybe a little bit more flesh around the definition. Bertrand, do you agree with that definition? That definition would be fit for Churchill, <laughs> for Sir Winston Churchill, fighting the Germans, fighting Nazi Germany. That's 
really what he did, huh? to rise to the occasion and convince people to fight. I think it's an interesting version. I've never heard this one. I guess you have different type of leaders, different type of situation, different type of CEO. But this one is the benefit to be very generic and very illustrative. Yes. And we should talk a little bit about the origins of management. I mean, management as a so-called science is relatively young. We should go back to people like Peter Drucker, may rest in peace, people that started looking at management and formulating what management actually is and the different sides and aspects of management. I'm a computer engineer by background. I have a master's in science computer engineering. And I had a professor for a management optional, but he was an engineer himself, that used to say, Management arose from engineers not wanting to do management <laughs> as a science. <laughs> I always felt that was interesting. But certainly, I think Drucker is probably one of the precursors to management as a science. And obviously, if we look at management in measured ways, we can even go back to, for example, the origins of McKinsey & Company. McKinsey & Company in the early days was very much focused on measuring activities, for example, in manufacturing, which was emerging back then in the 30s and 40s in the US, and understanding the impact that certain operations would have. So again, management is a young science. Leadership, I would allege, is still probably not a science, really still not at that level. But obviously, as a science that is young, it's a science that some people still feel is a little bit BS. There's still a little bit of, okay, what did you study in college? Well, I studied economics, and then you have someone else. I studied management, and it's like somehow the person who studied management may, might not be seen in the same light as the person who studied economics. Economics feels more of a science than management, although... One could also say that economists don't have a particularly amazing track record of impact in society. So as a science, it may also have some work to be done. For today's definition, we will use both leadership and management at times a little bit interchangeably, but just beware, as I said at the beginning, we do believe there's a difference. The leader is sometimes a little bit more charismatic, the person who can convince people without necessarily proof, the person that can go for the moonshots. The manager is sometimes the person who's more process-driven, more step-driven. Again, today we'll use it relatively interchangeable just to make our lives easier and your lives as the listeners a bit easier as well. And maybe to add to your point about Management being a young science, maybe leadership is still an art in some ways. Indeed. It's still at art level. Maybe we'll see developments there that will get it to science level as well, whatever that may entail. Let's start by typifying the different styles, the different styles that we've seen of, let's call it leaders, managers. Maybe we can start with one level and kind of go back to leaders versus manager. There is a typical, let's call him uh, or her, quote unquote, uh, states person, chairman, visionary. So someone who will be very high level, providing very high level vision, high level orders, maybe some tactics, but who will rely on a CEO, managers to really execute per se. That type of person, it's pretty typical in many companies that you have a separation between these two roles to function, but some companies don't have that separation, of course. You have the same person as chair and CEO. In that situation, what you might have, however, is a COO in the organization, someone who will be more focused on the execution side of the business. Every business will be different. What's your perspective, Nuno, on the chairman vision? It's funny because you can see chairman visionary statesperson archetypes across many large organizations in various different roles, right? From VPs to directors... Sometimes even individual contributors, which obviously ends up not working very well. <laughs> and obviously yes. you see it in CEOs. The archetype is defined by people that are always at a very high level. They're always at 30,000 feet, etc. And normally they have difficulty in articulating their high-level vision 
and what they think they're conveying into actual actions. It's normally very difficult for this type of leader or manager to convey very specific type of actions. Now, this type of manager, this type of leader is not necessarily ineffective. They can be effective, but to your point, Bertrand, they need to surround themselves with the right level of talent. If it's a CEO position and the person is very high level, then they need to have a heck of a COO. They have to have a heck of a chief revenue officer, a heck of a chief product officer, etc. So they need to delegate a lot and they need to work normally with teams that are extremely good at doing that translation, extremely good at understanding high level objectives and views into actual tangible actions and outcomes. Again, I'm not a huge fan of this type of manager. I they normally skew towards, oh, I'm so brilliant that I don't need to get in the dirt and define actions and processes and stuff. They're also normally the people that behave like chair people, chairman or chairwoman, and they show up last minute for meetings and they show up into a discussion where everything's decided and they're the ones, oh, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. Let's change it all. And having a convincing opinion and decision-making logic around a specific matter. So they'd like to leave decision-making as late as possible. They would be what I would call extreme P's in Myers-Briggs type indicator. I'm not a huge fan of that type. I've worked with many through my career. Fortunately, nowadays, I don't have many in my life. <laughs> thank God. But it's that type of action. It's the action as if you all work for me. This is my high-level vision. If you can't translate it into processes, you're not very good, right? It's not my style. I don't like it very much. That said, as I mentioned before, it can be effective. There can be people that are driving this style that are very, very good at how they do it. But again, they need to have a lot of support beneath them. I think the style is particularly good for moonshot top plays, for companies that really need that level of ambition and looking forward that maybe demand someone who has a huge reality distortion field and doesn't know all the details and they just hire amazing people around them to, to figure that out. And we talk about who you need to surround yourself with. One position I've seen more and more is a chief of staff position. And I think that can go specifically well with this type of profile. And to your point around even VP levels can be statesperson and the like, that's unfortunately a trend I have seen. And I've seen a VP level as well with their own chief of staff and everyone wants a chief of staff for their function. I think at some point you have to be careful. For me, nothing has been more painful than to have report who behave like statesperson. That is very painful and not to have anything precise uh, coming from them and them needing somebody else from their team to come and explain the details. That's something that, at least by my book, very difficult to work with. I expect uh, the ability to dig uh, when needed and dig pretty far. And it's always a challenge if people are not able to do that. Again, if you have Absolutely fantastic people around you. That works, but you really have to bring the right people and people who enjoy this type of situation, who enjoy that separation between there's someone on the vision and there is me on the execution and I understand the role and I like it that way. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, there's now VPs and even directors getting chiefs of staff and whatever. <laughs> I always say, if you're the CEO in an organization like this, where everyone around you starts asking for it, start thinking about this little thing, which I've actually given some thought to, which is in some positions at some point, maybe you should just fire the boss and let the chief of staff take over the role, right? I mean, <laughs> talk about a way to create bench, right? You're not very good. This guy's amazing. <laughs> he should lead. <laughs> Obviously, this is, doesn't hold true for all positions, which do require sometimes a lot of more strategic thinking and seniority to be well-led. But there are positions where I do think it works well, this proxy, like, okay, yeah, 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 go ahead, hire a chief of staff. 
I think your chief of staff is better at this than you are, so I really enjoy this, but can you leave, please? <laughs> that might be a good lesson for people around and for the peers. That would make you learn, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just go ahead and learn. But yeah, it's a question of balance. I think if you express strong talent on one side of the puzzle, acknowledging that you might not be as good on the other side will still be better than not acknowledging and running a business to the ground because you don't care about the details. Another type that we see quite often, which Bertrand has pointed me in the right direction, because for many years I was calling it the wrong thing, the helicoptering type of, of manager, the micromanager, the person that goes normally very deep into the entrails of whatever's been done in a specific project or process, etc. Obviously, the cons of the micromanager are very obvious, right? If you have a lot of talented people around you and you're micromanaging them all the time, One, you're not getting the best out of them. Two, it's a bit of a waste of resources, right? Because you're probably paying them well and whatever. It doesn't allow them to grow. It doesn't allow them to have more outcomes. That said, I, in defense of the micromanager, because I do sometimes go into micromanagement mode, I think my leadership style certainly has different facets to it and my management style has different facets to it as these are gradients in different scales in some way. I think the advantage of the micromanager is sometimes to show by example. It's the ability to go from 30,000 feet to three feet and say, okay, and now I can show you how I would do this, right? And how I would drive this process and how I would write this email, how I would put that, the wording correctly in that press release, how I would evaluate this investment in the right way, etc. For me, helicoptering and micromanagement, if it's done systematically, it's not great for the reasons I just pointed out. But if you have the ability to do that, and we see there's, you know, we've, we've uh, listened to, for example, Dan Rose talk a lot about Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and his experiences at Facebook and Amazon. The best leaders or the best managers normally are very good at that. They're very good at 30,000 feet, but I can go three feet as well, right? I can be discussing strategy for the company. I can be discussing that word is wrong there. Uh, <laughs> and I think that skill is just an incredible superpower, but it needs to be used very, very carefully. And getting that nuance right is, is difficult. I like to call it actually nano management to make fun of it uh, even more when people are going way too much into some details. But, but for me, going too much into some details, it really depends. Because the example of Jeff Bezos going into strategy and then what's missing and important communication. At some point, if you are the leader of a business, communication is important. What's missing, something that's supposed to come from your mouth is important. Yes, you will have someone writing it first, but of course you need to create your own flavor and to adjust to your own tone, to your own style. And you want to create if you don't agree <laughs> with something, even if you have great people, uh, they won't be totally aligned with you. That's one thing I've been pretty frustrated sometimes is that some people don't understand that you are on the big picture, but that doesn't mean you are going to accept everything presented to you and that you will not request some adjustment. At some point, you still need to do some of this. So the question is more a question of percentage. Are you in 90% of your time in nano management mode? Or is it only when it's really important and you can make a difference, especially if you're the one <laughs> presenting, talking or signing something? That's another aspect, another style, and probably an extreme you want to be careful. I think micromanagement as a tool has two advantages if it's well exercised, which is one, it gives you very deep understanding of what people are doing and what the company is doing at certain levels. Bezos, the famous example of him taking customer service tickets and addressing him himself. I think that gives you a very, very granular view at a very, very low level of how the organization is behaving, what's maybe not totally right in terms of translation to strategy, for to processes uh, down your lines, 
So it gives you a very granular understanding of that. And I think that's very powerful if it's well done. And the second piece that it really gives you is it allows you to touch key parts of your business that sometimes you wouldn't touch otherwise. And sometimes that disconnection, the being away too much from your business creates too much reality distortion field. So I think using micromanagement as a tool sometimes allows you to moderate your reality distortion field, which is good. Reality distortion fields can be very positive and very well used internally, but they need to be balanced, right? They can't be nuts. There's nuts, then there might be fraud or the company goes down the drain down the road and nobody noticed it, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, the micromanagement tool, it gives you that balancing act, the pullback of, okay, and now I know the truth and maybe it I need to sort of tone down some of the stuff I've been saying on the strategic side in terms of objectives and what I'm setting to the team, etc. Yeah, I mean, nothing can frustrate more a team when someone is just too disconnected from the business. And as you say, you have to be careful because at some point, especially if you're in the top positions, you have fiduciary duties to the business, to the shareholders. And at some point, you have to sign stuff for your name on the line. You have to try to understand what's happening and more than just understand, go into details when stuff look weird. That's a key part of the game and you cannot just delegate. If shit hits the fan at some point, the buck will stop with you. Maybe another example of leadership style is the revolutionary. We have seen this approach. Some companies tried different ways to run a business. One that some favor at some point in time in Silicon Valley five, seven, eight years ago was holacracy. Some talk about liberated companies. And of course, it all depends on how you manage it, how you apply it. If we take the example of Zappos, I'm not sure it worked out well to work that way. My take is that, especially in tech, you are already at the cutting edge or even bleeding edge of either technology or business model. Usually you bet one of the two, else uh, why would you be the company succeeding in your space and why would you be valuable? When you try to be cutting edge on either tech or business, trying to be cutting edge on the absolute latest management fad that are extreme. I'm not talking about a new flavor, but a relatively extreme new approach, especially like holacracy. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right because there is only so much you can do right in your life, solving either a very difficult hard tech or approaching your business in a very new, different way, you can't at the same time try some bleeding edge management styles that have not really been tried elsewhere, that is new, where you don't find people to support you, to explain you, to understand you, that have not been vetted by others. My take on the revolutionary approach is extreme caution. Maybe take some bits and pieces here and there that you feel could resonate, but be extremely careful because typically it doesn't end well. If it ends well, it's really because it has been done very carefully and usually in very limited way by people who have really, really deep expertise in managing people. There's always been this notion of very flat organizations that are driven a lot by values, but there's a lot of autonomy given to all the team members. There might be environments where that works better than others. We could be talking about a very small organization. We could be talking about an organization that is very focused on a very key and creative element of the value chain that they're in. There's a lot of reasons why you could do things that are a little bit out of the box. But to your point, Bertrand, and I totally agree with it. These things need to be done in moderation and carefully. Because if it becomes anarchic and it becomes complex, your culture will become normally, in my experience, the least common denominator. It becomes whoever's the biggest asshole, worst person in your team that is the most vocal. That's how the culture is going to be defined because people are going to be like bullied all the time. In certain ways, you need to be 
quite thoughtful around applying these styles of leadership and management. Again, they might work in certain circumstances, even in some larger organizations. For a long time, there was this philosophy around extreme programming, which in some ways led to the whole advent of Agile as a movement, that the right way to do things is to be relatively flat in engineering. There's great examples of how that can work, but hierarchy always has a role in terms of cutting through the moment and making decisions and getting stuff done. And maybe that is a good segue to our next type, which is the benevolent dictator. Normally, benevolent dictators are people that are both strategic and tactical. We'll come back to the benevolent piece in a second. Dictator means that the buck stops in her or him. So the final decision is always with her or him. And that makes things very clear. All decisions at the end that matter within the remit of that function of that operation are with that person. The benevolence piece comes when those people normally give space for others to scale. And what that means is the benevolent dictator normally manages more by outcome than by process, which doesn't mean that the benevolent dictator can't use micromanagement and other tools, but certainly normally it's more managed by outcome-driven pieces. Like, okay, you come to me and say, okay, what's the conclusion on this project that we were doing? And then if there's a decision that needs to be made or a strategic direction that needs to be taken, I have the final call. Again, this is a model that can work very well. The negatives of this model, well, the difference between benevolent and <laughs> an evil dictator is just a couple of decisions, as I always say. <laughs> so the margins of decision-making are very, very, very thin. The second piece is with that, sometimes it's difficult to empower people because at some point you need to empower people in actually making decisions. So in some cases, the benevolent dictator becomes by nature a micromanager, which isn't the main aim of this type of leadership style. There's a couple of negatives to this. I think in terms of the team you're building around you, you need to have a team around you that normally is extremely self-sufficient in terms of getting to outcomes, but at the same time, it's a team that's highly motivated by processes and operations and actions, where they are willing to delegate the final decisions and the complexities of decision-making to one person. There are some cases where through the bench, through the way you manage these teams, you are able to pick up people and let them go into their own leadership challenges and management silences outside the remit of this organization or business unit or team. What ends up happening is if you're very good at this as a benevolent dictator, what you're effectively creating if you have very good decision-making people as part of your organization is you're creating space for those people to go somewhere else. It might be somewhere else in the organization, might be leaving the organization altogether. It's normally a type of leadership that leads to what I would call a very good followership, very good cubs, using the tiger cubs nomenclature, right? The people that left the organization and they go on to do their thing. They might actually not be the people that will thrive within your organization because they want to do their own decision-making. They want to create their own things at a certain point in time. So you end up with two positive extremes of people on the team, the people that are very, very operational, very focused on getting actual stuff done, or the people that actually have different objectives and want to be more decision-making oriented and want to take their own calls and those people normally tend to actually leave and go somewhere else. And there's nothing wrong with that. You're creating just pools of talent around you. And they will have had your tour of duty with you, their war with you for three years, four years, whatever the time is. And then they go and do something else, which is also valid. If we talk about another profile, I would say the typical Silicon Valley profile, it's the product CEO, at least if we look at, at CEOs. I guess we have the example of nearly every big tech founder CEO. Take a Bill Gates. 
Take a Jeff Bezos, take a Mark Zuckerberg, take a Steve Jobs. So they were all product-centric CEOs. Of course, they understand the numbers. Of course, they understand sales. But their core, their love, what they are famous for is the product side of the business. Because in the best tech companies, product will define a strategy and culture. And I think that Dan Rose had some uh, very good threads about this and how he experienced it with the CEO of Amazon and Facebook. That's something that ideally you want to look for in, in a tech CEO. At the end of the day, you can optimize sales, you can optimize finance, but if it's run by the accountants, your tech companies is going to go to the ground at some point, to be frank. Definitely, it's the defining type of CEO in technology. It is sort of a subtype of a uh, couple of types we already talked about. I think the product CEO style that Jeff put at Amazon, Gates back in the day at Microsoft, not only as the CEO, but also after <laughs> as being the CEO, being the chief software architect, which was sort of the most high title on that organization at that point in time. No pun intended, it literally was. And they're sort of a mix of what I would call benevolent dictators, so people where all the key decisions go to them. At the same time, a bit helicoptering, so people that go 30,000 to 3 feet, both Jeff and Bill were clearly in that camp, right? People that can go and have a discussion with you on assembly when you're leading their latest OS <laughs> development. Bill was very famous <laughs> in terms of interview uh, practices and how deep he could go. And at the end, it was not too sure if he wanted to test people up, basically up to the end of their job. And, and if it works, that's good. <laughs> I don't have to worry about this guy anymore. And I think Jobs was as well the style, a bit the benevolent dictator and the micromanager. I think his micromanagement skills were maybe a little bit more UX driven than certainly Bill was more, much more technical. That's why I think early on they had this amazing fight because Jobs was more UX and he was more commercial and Bill was more techy, more nerdy. But in some ways they had very similar styles. They just went deep on different things, basically. But again, the product CEOs that we've seen work really well are normally around these camps. I would say Mark Zuckerberg and to a certain extent Larry Page, slightly different styles. There are areas where I think Mark is the benevolent dictator. Um, product is probably one of them. There are areas where he's willing to let others take the decision and just run with it and be very outcome driven. I think the fact that Cheryl has been at Facebook as long as she has been is probably a testament of that, that she has a lot of autonomy to drive a lot of things which is incredible. And I think that relationship, they've had their own stressors, but I'm sure it, it has worked very positively. I mean, in terms of just duration, it's one of the most incredible relationships. I think the Eric Schmidt, Larry Page, Sergey Brin relationship also worked along those lines with Sergey maybe going more moonshot, special projects at a certain point in time, Larry being more focused on really building the core product of what they were doing around Google and Eric sort of serving a little bit as the third in the box and nominally the CEO in some ways. And no disrespect, he was obviously the CEO, but certainly the person that would sort of balance those forces. But again, always to the point that you were making, Bertrand, very focused on product and products. The notion of how do you address end customers and users? How do you get stuff done to a level that delights them. I think maybe none other than Jeff, maybe he wouldn't see himself as a product CEO because he is so broad in terms of his skill set and very analytical. But this customer obsession that Amazon has as a value, I think is really coming directly from him. They are obsessed and that's made them successful. Definitely. If we talk about another perspective on the different styles of leadership of managers, there is one good distinction that John Durr from Kleiner Perkins was famous to talk about was a mercenary versus missionary type of profile. And 
from far, for some people, it might look like it's not too different, but actually I think it is quite different. He used to say that you have one focus on the sprint, the mercenary, the missionaries, they go for the marathon, mercenaries driven by paranoia, missionaries driven by passion. On that one, I might disagree because I guess many people read that famous book from Andy Grove, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. And I think he was a great leader. So I guess it's not only mercenaries who are driven by paranoia. Uh, missionaries are, but I think that definitely missionaries have a passion that mercenaries don't have. They have a love for their business, a love for their company, a love for their team, where mercenaries would be much more tactical, typically obsessed about entitlement uh, as well, motivated by just making money. And I think missionaries might recognize and like money, but definitely they are here for something bigger as well a bigger meaning, a bigger outcome, bigger impact. So very different type of profile. Ideally, just to be clear, you just want to hire missionaries. I don't think you want mercenaries in the team. They won't last as long. And typically, they will have a negative impact on the team. Uh, your best people might resent that. And that's something that can destabilize your business. So my take on this is, please be careful focus on the missionaries type. The mercenaries won't be there too long. We'll jump at the first bump. We'll jump at the first better opportunities and they can really negatively impact others around them and bring more people like them. That framework that John's been sharing for many years and funnily enough, obviously, John overlapped with Andy Grove at Intel and was senior at Intel before going to Kleiner Perkins. I have a little bit more of a nuanced view on mercenary versus Missionary, I think I agree with his assessment of what constitutes each type. Sometimes you do want to have aggressive transactional people on your org, and then it becomes more of a discussion around value system, how to incentivize, and how to get it done. And in some pieces of work, some areas like sales and areas like business development, maybe to a certain extent, depending on the type of business development you're doing, corporate development. I've worked in banking for a period of time as well. It's good to have someone there that is just shark and they just go systematically for the transaction. Now, again, it needs to be toned down. It needs to be managed. It can't be someone that goes against all the value system of what the organization stands for. I fully agree with you on that, Bertrand. I mean, if someone who's just, this is the value system of the organization and this guy is the opposite or this person is the opposite, that won't work. But it's good to have the transactional person there. And I have had some experiences in my life of people that ended up staying very long <laughs> for some reason in the organization, much longer than I thought they would, systematically figuring out what's the point optimization for me on this. And again, normally they are working around transactional work and stuff like that, and maybe a little bit less around day-to-day in six months, you're still going to be do that type stuff. So yeah, I think in principle, I agree with missionaries better than mercenary, but sometimes having a little bit of a healthy dose of that, having a few around and being able to manage those people and being able to have them actually deliver that, that sharkish transactional point is not a bad thing. I would say maybe individual sales contributors might be one of these type of position where it might work okay, but you have to be very careful because these people, when they leave, you can discover after that some corpses. Yes. You will open your closet and you're like, oh, really, they did that. And that's why my client doesn't talk to us anymore. (laughs) From experience, you have to find that balance. I think that mercenary, it's really that yourself and your own personal outcome is way beyond everybody else, including your company, your teammates, your boss, your reports, your clients. And that typically doesn't end very well. There's two final points I would like to make. One is not all missionaries are great. 
I think the difference between a missionary and a mercenary is a mercenary on their best day, using the notion of good to great, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he has this chapter on leadership where he defines several levels of leadership up to level five, which is the best. I think we've mentioned in, in one of our previous episodes. I think the best a mercenary can get to is probably level four, right? Uh, whereas a missionary can potentially get to level five, right? Those are the guys who really are going to inspire followership and get to the next level. That said, there are awful awful, awful missionaries around us. And you could hire someone for your organization who's the wrong type of missionary. It could be like a level one leader, right? With someone who's so focused on the values and on the passion of whatever that they forget at some point the call to action. At some point, they sort of get just totally embedded in value systems and stuff. So again, it's not that all missionaries are better than mercenaries, just the highest you can get to is probably different. And to your point, Bertrand, which I totally agree with, if you get mercenaries into your organization, it's like you just got a wolf inside the hen house. You just need to be careful, right? It's like, how do I protect the hens right now? <laughs> I need to be very, very yeah. cautious in how this structure will work. Again, as you said, individual contributors might work a little bit better. Checks and balances might work a little bit better. You better have an amazing leader managing that person, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a little bit of that. I, I feel it's just a bit more nuanced, the point, than black and white. In some ways, it's more physiologic than binary. It makes sense if you have a missionary who does not execute and is just focused on the values and uh, other stuff, but not on really delivering business, that's not going to work either. And yes, some people might disconnect uh, from the practical things. Uh, that's true. I would say I was more thinking on average with the same level of execution. I would prefer to rely on the missionary type of guy because the mercenary, I don't know when he will backstab me, <laughs> but he will try at some point or somebody else or the client. You never know. They have to be handled with care and like a dangerous knife. And maybe the last discussion we would want to have in sort of this notion of typifying a little bit styles of leadership is the practitioner versus the manager. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Bertrand, and your experiences? In terms of practitioner versus manager, there is always that question. Do you really know your industry, your vertical? Do you have expertise in it? Or are you just managing people, a people manager? And I think that's where we go in the discussion of, I don't want to say weird, but weird level of management where you are not on the top exec side, you are not managing a team directly, but you are in that middle management layer. And that's usually where company dies when you have too many middle managers. And you need some of them, huh, to be clear, and they, of course, can be very good, but you have to be very, uh, very careful. Uh, me, a pure manager with little expertise, uh, functionally or in the industry, that's typically someone that even if he, he wants well, will probably do some harm at some point because he will have trouble to really inspire people if you are more of an empty shell in some ways. You need to find a balance, but some industry expertise, some functional expertise, I think it's key to have that. There's been a lot of this discussion around the T-shaped leaders and managers, people that are brought on top and then have one very specific area of, uh, of deep knowledge in. Mm -hmm. I prefer pie-shaped, I guess, because I see myself as pie-shaped. So it's like, you know, I'm very broad on top. And then there's two areas where I'm super, super deep. There is a notion of superpower to that almost, right? I think both you and I believe that it is better to have an expert functionally or in industry or sub-industry or whatever job they're doing, because that person at some point needs to come down to the team and explain to the team, okay, this is how I would do it. And that sets the standard, it sets the template, it sets how things are going to be done going forward. If you don't have that capacity, the ability to go down and say, this is how it's done, 
One, it will be very difficult to lead by example, which I think leading by example is a very, very good thing in general. Again, if it's not too much micromanagement, right? If it's not too much my way or the highway, but there is a value in that for sure. And the second piece is if you don't have that, then at some point in time, your ability to even assess what the people that are working for you are telling you disappears. And in some very technical areas, for example, if we're talking about engineering or product, there are areas of product management and engineering where you can be like played around by your team all day long without knowing <laughs> that they're screwing around. You just literally would need to move the leader and the manager of that team and the team would necessarily perform better, right? Even without changing the team, right? Because just you can push people a little bit more hard, you know, how things are being done and how they should be done, etc. So I think this version of the very broad manager, very holistic manager... I'm not a huge believer in, I do believe there are people that have more than one spike. There are people that have several spikes and they can go from business development to product and they're exceptional at both. But I have difficulties in believing in someone who's an exceptional manager in a relatively complex area or technical area that doesn't have any or any real knowledge of that area as a practitioner. There are maybe some areas where you can get away with it. I won't go into details on what because I'm sure I would get some, some nasty messages and email after that. But there are definitely some areas in my mind that I believe are a little bit broader in terms of the dimensions that you as a manager can bring without having necessarily expertise in that space or in that function. But there are others where I think it's impossible. Uh, and for a period of time, we saw a lot of dimensions. I mean, I remember Google later on Yahoo with Marissa that they wouldn't hire product managers who didn't have an engineering background, right? Because they're like, you need to be talking to engineers all the time. You need to call them on their BS, right? I mean, if you don't understand the limitations of the work they're doing, even at a high level, right? Even if it's not in depth, it's very difficult for you to push back and have arguments on prioritization, on what needs to be done versus not, on whether this is a good schedule to get stuff done on or not. To this point, I think the, the perfect example is uh, if you are a product manager, a lot of companies, uh, take Google, for instance, Facebook as well, you cannot be a product manager if you don't have a technical degree, <laughs> specifically in computer science, and if you have not spent some time doing computer engineering. You are just not going to be product manager in these companies. And in some ways, I believe it's a probably a bit too extreme because I think there are exceptions, people who can do a great job as product manager without that deep technical background. And obviously, you can have people with deep technical background who have horrible product managers. But I kind of subscribe that by default, expecting technical understanding of what's happening by your engineering team when you're in a product manager position, you are not directly managing them, is quite important. As you say, you cannot get bullshitted. You understand, you can challenge, you can discuss, you can negotiate, you can appreciate. So that part is, I believe, is quite important. As usual, I believe you have to make exceptions for people who can be very talented, even without that technical background. I think it goes without saying everything we're saying as exceptions. There's incredible people out there that have not studied computer science, but they're incredible at product management and a bunch of other amazing examples. So uh, obviously we're not instituting some type of uh, religion fundamentalism here, but rather sharing what sort of normally works versus what normally doesn't work. And this concludes episode 31, our first episode on leadership and management. In our next episode, episode 32, we will focus on how to execute as well as what are the key elements to make a great culture, what are the right key values that you want inside your business. Thank you again for listening to this episode. See you next time. 
You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.